0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Tatyana Mahmood. She's a transformational technology executive who delivers game change and results by anticipating the future, obsessing over customers and building amazing teams. Humans create the future. Technology is a tool. She's an advisor to tech leaders making bold and courageous moves that will bend the trajectory of the world. On this week's episode, we talk about How has building products in Silicon Valley changed over time? Where in the decision-making chain does the focus on the customer get lost? What are some brand-building strategies for startups? How is OpenAI, ChatGPT, as well as Web3 being discussed in new product development these days, and much more? All right, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right. I'm really excited for today's episode. We have Tatiana here, who I met at an amazing event. So I'd like to thank Daniel for the invitation and hosting us. Um, He's a past guest on the show. I'll leave it for our audience to find his episode out there, but it was around episode 80 or so. But with that, Tatiana, you've had this amazing background from, well, I mean, I guess now you're dabbling in construction a little bit, but tell us a little (laughs) bit about your career up until this point.
1: Sure. I've had a, some people say, circuitous career into tech product management. However, I don't see it that way. I actually think it is an amazing route to go into in order to be leading products, especially today. I have a background in anthropology. I have a PhD in anthropology after getting my first degree in economics. And I was the black sheep of my family because my mother's an engineer, my father's an engineer, my brother's an engineer, my grandmother's an engineer, my aunt's an engineer. My husband's an engineer, and I decided that I found people and humans far more fascinating than machines and systems. I decided to study human behavior, and that took me to economics at first because I like to model behavior. And of course, with all those engineers in the family, I was doing a lot of math basically my whole life growing up. But then the Russian economy collapsed in 1998 when I was studying economics. And I realized that all these models that were showing that humans behaved a particular way didn't weren't right. So I went into anthropology grad school, graduated with a Ph.D. studying the economic transition in Russia, which was really a socioeconomic transition. And at the time, I was going to become a professor of anthropology at UC San Diego. But at this company,
0: UC San Diego is the greatest university ever.
1: It's in a lovely place. It's just absolutely gorgeous.
0: For our audience out there, uh, April 29th, I'm speaking on a panel at the Ruby School, the MBA program for Investment Bank. And thank you for that shameless plug.
1: There you go. You're welcome. And so I was going to become an academic, really write about how humans behave, how culture is evolving. One of the things in my dissertation was how humans really orient themselves around the future and an imagined perspective on the future and how a lot of what we do and what motivates us and how economic outcomes come to be is really around this orientation of the future. And it's a whole chapter around futurity and why humans really are oriented around this notion that the future should be a particular way and that we strive to achieve that future. IDEO called, and IDEO is a global design firm, arguably the biggest and most successful in the, one in the world. And they asked me to come in for an interview. And I said, I'm not a designer. I know nothing about design. And they said, no, we're looking for an anthropologist. And we're especially going into a lot of social impact work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and some other organizations. So I came and I had an amazing interview with Tim Brown, the CEO, and he offered me a job and I loved him so much. I took it and I started at IDEO in 2007 and I started doing all of these global impact, social impact projects. So I went to Kenya, Ethiopia, Cambodia for the Gates Foundation to study how farmers were using water. But this was 2008. And in 2008, M-Pesa in Kenya became really big. M-Pesa was one of the first mobile payments apps in the world. And so I, as an anthropologist does, I just follow what people are excited about and what they're talking about and what they're orienting their futures around. And more and more people were not orienting their futures around just farming in Kenya, but really around mobile money transactions and what that opened up for them as human beings and for their families. And so I just started following that thread and following that thread. And then when I came back to the United States, I became one of the world's experts on mobile money because I was there in Kenya watching people use M-Pesa, understanding what are the transformations that are happening as a result of this technology. And then, of course, in 2007, the iPhone launched and I was in Kenya right after that. And then all these companies started coming to IDEO and saying, we want to create a mobile app. And nobody really knew how to design a mobile app, but I had done at least a mobile money project and I raised my hand and I said, I can probably figure out how to lead these teams to create mobile apps. So I started creating more and more digital experiences at IDEO. And from that, I was there for seven and a half years, also built the org design practice there to help organizations understand what are the things they need to do to innovate themselves as opposed to hire outside agencies again and again. And then Salesforce called and Salesforce wanted to become a design-led company, wanted to redo the entire design of their flagship product, the sales cloud. And so I led that lightning experience design, then built the IoT cloud there, then went to Amazon and built Honeycode, (laughs) and then went to Nextdoor, became the chief product officer recently, was at Pendo as the SVP of product building new platform. And so a lot of people really don't fully understand how important it is to have a product leader who is well-versed in the social sciences. Because a lot of our teams in Silicon Valley and a lot of our leadership comes out of technology. And that's great. Definitely technology is a big part of product development, but it's not the only part. And so when you hire product leaders who have the same backgrounds as the engineering leaders, you have engineers talking to engineers, which isn't as productive As engineers talking to social scientists who understand how culture is changing, how human behaviors are changing, how society is changing, and help to position the company to develop the right products to really meet the requirements and those transformations in society. And so I think the whole reason why I've been so successful as a product leader and been able to launch successful product after successful product after successful product is because. I really work with the predominantly engineering driven organizations to help fill in that piece of what do humans want? What do our customers as human beings actually want? How is society transforming and how do we build the right product for the right time and land it in a market that is ready for that product?
0: Okay. So I got a lot of questions right there. The first one, I'm just wondering, you're at ideo for seven and a half years and then other companies were able to kind of recruit you and keep to go from one company to the other someone at your level how does a company attract you to go from one idea to their idea and i'm also kind of curious if over this time and just kind of the history of silicon valley how has product development changed over these over the years
1: yeah so i'll take your first question so I do change jobs very frequently because I am someone who loves to innovate. I am best at a blank piece of paper. When a company has a challenge or a CEO or even a board have a goal that they really want to achieve, but they don't know how to achieve it, I am the, usually the person that they call because I love that new challenge. And so giving me a big new challenge with a lot of possibility to create is the way to attract me.
0: For the audience, why that question popped up in my mind, a lot of people have written to the show and said, Hey, how do I attract good talent for my early stage company? So that's where I was thinking the basis of, of asking that question for everyone it was like, Wait, that came out of left field there.
1: Yeah, I do think that if you're looking, if you're an early stage founder and you're looking for great talent on the product side, one of the things to consider is this person really going to have a blank piece of paper? Or do you need someone who's really great at executing on your idea? I really love to develop the specifics around the idea, go after really define the customer, define the market, define what is the product going to look like, create the North Star vision of the product, hire the team to build the product and then deliver it. That's what I love to do. But if you're a founder and you have a great idea already of what the product vision is and you need someone to execute, you need a very different skill set. So that is my caveat there. I do advise a lot of founders on their very first product hire. So this is something that we dig into a lot. In terms of how has product changed in Silicon Valley, I think it depends on where you start your time frame. I think that there was a lot of incredible work in the tech industry and in in general in the 1990s and early 2000s around understanding how to build products that people will really love and how to go through a more human-centered approach to product development. And I think that some of that with the rise of a couple of big companies in particular Google, some of that was in some ways transformed or changed. And we Started seeing, I think, a loss of the discipline of really how to create the right products for people that will have a good understanding of the second and third order consequences of what that, those products might become in the future. So, what I mean is, when you're a social scientist and you're looking at how to land a product in the market, you're not just looking at the first order consequence of will this narrow set of people adopt this product, and how do we build to the best technology and optimize the short-term metrics, but you're also looking at a longer-term trajectory of what are the social factors that are going to come in here and how can this evolve in the future and where does that take us? So for example, if you have a social media product and you're only optimizing for a very narrow metric like time in app, there are a lot of things that you can tweak to do that in the short-term, but where that actually takes you to in the longer term is a lot of risks like that you're going to emphasize sharing content that may be more engaging because it is enraging. You may and not think about that, right? Because you're just narrowly focused on this metric. Social scientists look at it from a broader
0: perspective. So with that then, what metrics should a company be looking for or looking at when developing a product?
1: So I think about North Star metrics in terms of Product value, product love, and aligning a metric to your mission statement. So at the highest level for a product, you want to really identify what is driving product value and what do your customers really care about? And you want your product metric to not just be something like revenue or profitability, the metrics that the shareholders and investors care about. You want it to be something that actually shows that your customer really values this product and you want to align that to customer value. And that's product value. The second one is product love, which is the longer term metric. This is where I'm saying, like, not just the short term metric. Let's just take time in app again. If people are spending more time in the app, then the app is adding them value, creating value for them. That's why they're spending more time. OK, great. But you actually want to have a longer term metric there, which says that um, the product is also adding value to society.
0: Tatiana, quick question for you. We've talked about the product development. We've talked about so many things right now. On my mind, probably our listeners, or at least the a lot of people, they have concerns about generative AI, Mm -hmm. ChatGPT. We've had past guests, Maya, who's founder of Wave.ai, come on board, talk about everything we're gonna see in the future. But you know, from your viewpoint, the anthropology background, product development, what are your thoughts happening right now with this? It's
1: an incredible moment in history. First of all, I think we can all feel it. And one of the things that we feel is we feel a great sense of fear and anxiety. And as an anthropologist, I understand this as our sense and our confidence in a future that was once knowable has now fallen away. The things that we have optimized our personal lives around are now coming into question because we thought that our future depended on becoming really great at things like writing and creating great art and communicating well and making great logical decisions. And that's really how many of us knowledge workers really optimized our entire lives. And what ChatGPT and LM Models is showing us now is that the AI can do all of those things just as well as we can or better. And so now we're being like our understanding of what our future would look like, which is basically like more of the same, right? We're going to be better at writing and we're going to be better at artwork and web design and things like encoding, right? That now becomes completely in question. And are all of us going to have our jobs just in the same forms that they are, only the co-pilots will be helping us? I don't think so. And I think that is not something to be afraid of. And I think that when we are afraid of it, it's because we lack both historical perspective and imagination. And what I mean by that is as an anthropologist, I look at the long kind of scope of human history and I realize that, and we can all realize this if we just look a little bit beyond ourselves, in our lifetimes and in most of what we've known, Of course, being better at writing and speaking and math and all of those things is how we get ahead. But before that, for most of human history, the people who were doing incredible work that were not involved in producing food were really involved in spiritual work, dimensions that didn't really just have to do with material forms and analyzing more things, but really getting in touch with larger aspects of the human experience. And we have completely forgotten that and lost it. And so when I look at the future and I think about what are the jobs of the future, I wonder if we are going to not be so obsessed with producing more material thought, like more thought forms, more things that our minds and language can produce, but that we'll be able to go back to a deeper and richer human experience of spirituality. If there are going to be more jobs in the future, more ways of becoming fulfilled and making money or whatever the, the economy will evolve to in the future by really connecting with the spiritual part of human beings, not just the mental parts of spirit of human beings, and that our work will return back to a more integrated aspect of the human experience. Right now, it's when you think about, do you really want your children writing more emails? Do you really want your children being customer service reps? Do you really want your children doing a lot of the things that we're involved in? Probably not. But do you want your children to have a richer spiritual life than what most people have had, frankly, in the 20th or 21st century up to now? Absolutely. And I think that is where our imagination takes us. As we look out, when AI takes all these mundane, you know, silly jobs and website design jobs and things and coding jobs, all those mundane things, we will be freed up to ask bigger questions.
0: I like that. I like that. So for our audience, we're going to start looking into the Silicon Valley podcast, Religious Cult. If you're interested in being one of the founding members, please email us, go to our website and we'll have updated information there on how this progresses.
1: So that's not actually a crazy idea. So there's two things that are happening in parallel. And these things either are a crazy coincidence or they're not. What I mean by that is there's a parallel set of experiences in Silicon Valley right now, which are more spiritual experiences. A lot of people are doing more psychedelics, a lot of even towns in Silicon Valley are legalizing psychedelics because it is having a very positive effect on the people in, frankly, and people are having these spiritual experiences. People are becoming more aware consciously. There's a whole kind of consciousness undercurrent within Silicon Valley of the emergence of awakening or consciousness. And it's it's either a coincidence that it's happening at exactly the same time as AI is emerging or if you don't completely believe in these crazy coincidences, that would probably be like statistically very improbable. There's probably a convergence of these two things, right? And that these two things are happening in parallel because we have lost a sense of who we truly are as human beings in the last 200 years. And this is the opportunity for us to have our society and economy evolve to a place where we start to remember that there is something bigger to the human experience and bigger to human life than coding and writing emails and website design. And a lot of the things that we devote most of our lives to.
0: So that's trying to think right now of, there's so many people wanting to help emerging countries, emergent economies, but it almost seems like they'd be able to bypass the material stuff to go straight to the spiritual stuff, but they're already at the spiritual stuff right now. Are they just going to leapfrog all of us or... I'm trying to look at how is ChatGPT really going to affect then these developing countries.
1: So there's two different questions, right? There's the question of what is AI going to do in terms of overall economic development, right? And I think from a global scale what you do see is you see some of the competitive advantages that we had as native English speakers start to disappear, right? Because there is Let's just be real. An advantage to being a native speaker of the primary language, which is the language of business. Right. And so we are going to start to see that disappear. So there is going to be in some ways a leveling. Now, this also creates a lot of instability because then you start to question, is it the U.S. dollar going to be be as strong or as other countries start to create other kind of models for technology and for economic development outside the U.S. So that's one question. The other question is in terms of this whole question of the human experience and really highlighting the fact that we have so one dimensionalized the human experience into being better at logic and writing and again, producing like website designs and things like that and apps that the multiple dimensions can emerge from anywhere. Now, it is interesting to me that at least in the United States, the place that is actually doing a lot of the AI development, Silicon Valley, is also doing a lot of the real kind of consciousness. There's a huge surgence, right, of the consciousness community here as well at the same time and often by the same people. And so that is very interesting to me. But of course, I do think you start to enable the emergence of new possibilities and new economic forms and new types of jobs and new forms of leadership from anywhere in the world, if you take away that competitive advantage of English and being a native speaker of English, which is the lingua franca of business, if you start to take that away, you can see a lot of new things emerge from lots of different corners of the world
0: and yeah, that's very interesting when I was living in China, I lived over in Costa Rica, I lived a couple of places and it was just very interesting yeah the, English, the language of science, business, If just by learning English, your economic status jumps up. In fact, it is funny. I almost would say in most, a lot of countries, having a PhD or whatever in the local language, not a big deal. But if you knew English as your one skill, you'd have a better economic outcome or potential than pretty much anything else.
1: That's exactly right. And so again, a lot of the things that we've optimized for are going to be less important. And so the question is, what is going to become more important in the new sort of skills of the, it's not just skills of the future, right? It's really the being able to ask the right questions for the future. It's no longer going to be like, how do I write a better email or how do I learn English or how do I get better at coding in the new coding language? Right. It's not going to be those questions aren't going to be the questions that obsess us anymore, that that are going to drive the future. There are going to be new questions and those new questions are going to arise in the next five to 10 years. And how we deal with that and how we show up and start to fund those new questions is also going to remake the entire kind of landscape of what do we define as winners, losers, good investments, bad investments. And that can go in a lot of different directions. At this moment in time, there is a lot of possibility. And in the next few years, we are going to make very critical foundational decisions around. Both of frameworks that AI is built upon, at least the major ones that we know of today and that will probably emerge from this area of the world, this corner of the world. But we're also going to make very fundamental decisions about what are the new problems and questions that are going to get funded. To be answered. So, for example, AI has now become a big question for VCs, and so a lot of money is flowing in that. Before that, it was VR and the metaverse, maybe crypto and blockchain. Before that, it was climate tech. Before that, it was social networking, right? So there are these questions that emerge and money flows into answering those questions. And right now is a moment in my lifetime when I'm seeing much bigger questions than just what's the next technology platform going to start to emerge. There are all kinds of questions of what will humans want to do 20, 50, hundred years from now that we cannot even imagine today.
0: So then as a founder, or I'm just trying to think of, and maybe this isn't a question for this interview, but psychologically of these people that are on this journey to build these companies now that are being disrupted, how should they prepare to pivot, swerve, adjust? Yeah. How do they manage the next few years?
1: I think there's the tactics and then there's like the bigger questions, right? Tactically, certainly the. All of the tools that are being put out by ChatGPT, other kind of foundational models, absolutely. Like it, there's an absolutely imperative to start incorporating those into every product, into every platform, into everything that's being built, and to not believe that in some way product is going to be immune from that trend. It probably isn't. One of the biggest revolutions, I believe, in this in this particular form of AI is the UI revolution. Right, the user interface is no longer going to be something that people need to click here and click there and look at a dashboard and do filters and things like that, right? The ability to just ask a question as if you're asking the best expert in the world that has access to the data and just get an answer in return, as opposed to like things like menus, buttons, dashboards almost are like going to be... The question is, do these need to exist? For every product manager, they should be asking themselves, would my UI, would my experience actually be better for my user if they could just ask a question and get it back as opposed to clicking on buttons and menus (laughs) looking at dashboards. So that whole revolution is happening. Everybody needs to tactically look at that. What they need to then more strategically look at is what's the opportunity cost of me putting more of my time and effort into solving a problem that I identified two years ago or five years ago versus basically shutting down what I'm doing right now and feeling inspired to solve, to ask and solve a bigger question and problem. I think that the opportunity cost of each one of our lives is going to become a very big issue, which is, am I doing the thing that I believe is the biggest challenge for myself and for what the future is becoming? And for a lot of founders, I think that the answer is going to be, actually, I had this idea two years ago before I even knew that a lot of this LLM stuff was possible. But now that I know that it is, I have an idea for a bigger thing that I can build. And I would encourage those people to not have the sunk cost fallacy, right, and not keep investing their precious time into something that is a smaller question because the bigger questions are here. They're coming. And there are going to be a lot of transformations in society, in economy, in what kinds of things people want to be doing in the future. And it's going to be reshaped dramatically. And for all of us, we need to say, what is my role in what this new sort of frame of futurity is becoming?
0: So Tatiana, with that, where do you see your role in the next couple of years?
1: That is a very good question. And that's partly why I'm not in a full-time job right now is because I see this as an incredible inflection point in history. I am working with a lot of founders. I am coaching CPOs to understand the shift. Again, do a lot of those tactical things in the near term, lead with confidence, courage and inspiration for their teams, right? Even when things seem uncertain. So I'm coaching. I am teaching other emerging product leaders how to be product leaders in this moment in time. And I am also trying to figure out what are the big questions that are emerging? What does the human future look like? I am involved in a lot of imaginative approaches around scenario planning, storytelling, and trying to create some frameworks to understand how to pose and problematize the right things and then go after them. And that is one of the things about, I said, one of the things I love is the blank page, right? Now, not only do we have a blank page in terms of the product, but we also have a blank page in terms of what will society and economy look like? The other thing is if we zoom out even further The current moment in time also has a lot of geopolitical instability. And so if you combine the technological radical shift with the radical shift in what humans will be able to do for work and get paid for with the global shifts on the geopolitical scale, there is just a lot of opportunity for any individual to create something impossibly new and actually shape how humanity evolves. That is where we are right now. And I am very much trying to sense my way through it and trying to anticipate, trying to be like there's the great hockey analogy of like skate to where the puck is going, not to where it is now. I'm trying to distance myself from where things, where the puck is now and where it was and trying to figure out what are the new physics of where the puck is going, if that makes sense. And position myself to be in that place for when the world starts to shift, to be one of the key players on the field, to actually create that future, that shift.
0: And then before wrapping up, is there any last advice that you could give our audience, founders out there that right now are probably listening to this episode more confused than when they
1: started? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sean. Thank you.
0: I'm sure they're all going on long walks after this into the mountains, but any last words, key takeaways for them to think about technology or products to use when they're developing their product or just any, anything that they could take away just with the shining light at the end. Don't forget to join the Silicon Valley podcast cult.
1: Yes. So I would say that remember that what drives value in business is what people currently value will value in the future and what they will pay for. When you build a product, you're building a product for what people will want in the future, not what they want today. And so be out in the world, go out into what I talk a lot about field work for great product leaders. So go out, expose yourself to as many situations, as many real world in context situations where your customers are or potential customers are. And try to understand where they are going and what they want better than better than they do which means the surveys are terrible i think for customer research because surveys only tell you what people already the questions are already formulated and they people answer based on what they think they know. Whereas if you're out in the field with people, you get to see what are the new questions that they're asking, what are the behaviors and the lifestyles that they actually want to achieve, the things that they can't yet formulate themselves or talk about, but which will actually shape the future experience. And so from there, you get amazing insight. It's like the iPhone versus BlackBerry, right? When you when BlackBerry Research and in Motion interviewed people and did a survey of all their BlackBerry users and said, Would you ever give up your tactical keyboard on your phone for something like an iPhone? 90% of them said, absolutely not. I love the keyboard, right? Because they were again. And so BlackBerry decided to skate to where the puck was, whereas Steve Jobs and the iPhone skated to where the puck was going because creating the ecosystem of applications and a real phone in your pocket was going to be a better value proposition, even though nobody could imagine it right now. So be really close to your customers. Go in the field with them, spend time with them, really understand what they're struggling with, and then posit some ways that you can build a product that they will love, not just today, but two years from now, when the world will change.
0: And with that, if anyone wants to find out more information about you and what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing that?
1: The best way is to follow me on LinkedIn. I'm Tatiana Mamut, M-A-M-U-T, the only one on the interweb, so very easy to find. And I post about a lot of things, product management, product innovation, culture, and how to build great organizational cultures. And more and more, I'll be also posting about what does the future hold and how am I seeing, what am I seeing as I go out into the field and kind of sense where, how the culture and how society is evolving.
0: Fantastic. We'll have the link to Tatiana's LinkedIn in the show notes. So for our audience out there, please visit the com, where you can see all our past episodes and find out more about things that we're working on in the future. And when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisitions, growth capital. Please connect with me if you want to have a conversation, I'm here to help. And with that, Tatiana, I want to thank you for taking the time on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the Silicon Valley and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.